0: To repeat myself from last week, sometime in July, this show is going to every other week instead of once a week. This is because I'm adding graduate school to a life that already includes a job and doing this podcast. But it's also because this show dives deep and there is plenty of stuff for most of you to catch up on if you're not cut up. And I I think that's very few people. Um, The two monthly patron-only bonus episodes will continue So if you do want four to five episodes per month, you can become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch, where you have permission pod, click become a patron. After the main interview today with Mark Schaefer, I will be answering a patron slash listener question. It's a long one from Josh. I'll read the whole thing now. Quote, what comes after permission? Even if we no longer feel beholden to toe the line for an institution, Often there is a deeper mourning process that occurs between ourselves and the internalization of those rules, beliefs, and practices. I'd be curious to hear more about your own internal or emotional process that has occurred alongside the intellectual liberation you've experienced. I know that for myself and many others, there seem to be phases to our exodus. Has mourning played a role for you as well? End quote. I'll answer that later on after we finished up with Mark But now to today's episode topic, uncertainty. This was such a fantastic conversation. I really loved it. And I think it's pretty obvious that this conversation is at the heart of what this show is really trying to do. The value of our faith is not in the certainty of our propositional beliefs about God. Even the demons believe, as Jesus says. Does a sense of certainty in our belief increase our love of God? Does it increase our love of neighbor? Or does that sense of certainty merely mitigate our anxiety, anxiety produced by our knowledge that we will die someday, anxiety produced by the fact that in the few moments where we are capable of being truly honest with ourselves, we realize that we could be wrong about a lot of things, including basic Christian tenets. Certainty, if we are capable of feeling it at all, can certainly help with that anxiety. Pun not intended there. But is that the point of Christian faith to reduce anxiety? What if certainty is baked into the world that we live in? What if the point of faith is to commit to God in spite of that completely unavoidable uncertainty? That's what today's conversation is about, and I hope you find it as helpful as I did. Mark, I'd like to start by having you simply describe this tract that you mention in your book. We're going to dissect it later on, but I want to start with this image in people's minds, because I think it's both telling and kind of funny. You you found it. It was called God, the solution to all your problems. Tell us about this thing.
1: Well, that's actually, so that, 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 Tract is kind of is sort of a, a more of a thought experiment, sort of imagining the okay. kind of so it's not anything. I, I did find other tracts. There are other things that I found yeah. which are um, which seek to basically provide the same thing. So that that tract, in effect, is a distillation of the sentiment that people use when they talk about God. Totally. Is God is a kind of product, and uh, and this is stuff. This is not you know. Uh, mine alone. I mean, Peter Rollins talks about this kind of thing all the time, where God is basically the product that is being provided. Um, it's, you know, the church will tell you it's not the sex, it's not the drugs, it's not the rock and roll, it's not the money, none of that is going to make you happy. But here, this product will, and this, and so God is marketed in almost exactly the same way that the, that the other products that they're criticizing are marketed.
0: Yeah, that's so good. Um, I guess I, I'm have outed myself as a not careful reader by not picking up on <laughs> <the> distinction between <laughs> a real no, they, track. Just, they just
1: did a really good job, I guess.
0: Yeah. I, I guess yeah. I wasn't surprised. Like, I guess I thought, Oh, I could totally imagine having found that track. So what does that say? Um, so you write in your intro of your book that the world has a certainty problem. What do you mean right. by that?
1: What I mean by that is that there is a kind of crisis uh, about basically with two camps of people. There are the people who are the certain and are uh, maintaining that certainty against all threats. That is, that they will shut down anything that challenges that certainty, that they will uh, close off conversation, debate, inquiry, and because they're afraid that if they dare to look at what they're certain about, it will collapse. Um, they may not admit that to themselves, but that's what's going on. And then the other group is the uncertain, and they're the ones who actually admit unknowing and doubt, and but they think then that they're doing something wrong because of it. So what you have is this weird thing where you have the people who are confident that they're doing the right thing are actually doing the wrong thing. And the people who think they're doing the wrong thing are actually doing the right thing. And this is creating an unhealthy environment for any kind of meaningful interaction to take place and, and actually for any kind of thoughtful discourse. Because if you're absolutely convinced that you are absolutely right – then what space is there for anyone who disagrees with you who thinks otherwise or has a different experience? And I think that that particular problem is causing a lot of trouble in the world today.
0: And you're not only talking about religious people, right? There's there are other kinds of of certainty. There's a kind of an atheist fundamentalism you find with people who really like Dawkins and Harris and all of that stuff. I mean, do you want to say a little bit more about how wide this spreads? Yeah, I mean, I
1: think it's, it's a human universal, honestly. I think so in any enterprise where there is a matter of opinion or speculation, um, and actually I would probably argue almost in any enterprise that we engage in, um, there are people who are going to be absolutely certain about what they know or what they think they know. And that's going to be to the detriment of them being able to have a conversation about politics, religion, philosophy, art, science, you name it. Um, And to your point, uh, there is a surprising similarity in the way that certain militant atheists think and certain religious fundamentalists think. In fact, I think they actually think the exact same way. They're just coming at it from a different starting point, but they're winding up often in the same place.
0: So of all the possible worries with uh, this certainty problem, this worldwide certainty epidemic, what is your biggest fear or worry? I guess my
1: biggest fear is that people who are sincerely longing for a meaningful spiritual or religious experience will be driven away by the by the perception that because they brook any kind of doubt then they're doing it wrong. They lack proper faith, that they're not sufficiently believing. And that what will happen then is that they will leave the religious traditions then to the people who are absolutely certain about everything and yeah. create no create no room for anyone else. Yeah. So what you're going to wind up with is a smaller and smaller group of absolutely certain people who broke no doubt whatsoever. I
0: I think, I don't think that this is a fear. I think this is already a reality. Right. Right. And, and we see this actually uh, in our politics right now, which I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you know, you can look at those graphs that Pew research has done in terms of um, rating people on a bunch of uh, positions and then they plot them from like consistently liberal all the way over consistently conservative. And those two colors have just spread further and further to the sides and and you especially see it in the in the parties right you have like the tea party is able to totally dominate uh for a while anyway the the right wing and then on the left you've got basically like impeachment even if it means we lose the next election on right. the le- and you know i don't want to have a debate about whether that's wise or not i understand it's a hard choice but you basically get like you know shout my abortion and and then on the other end, you have less restricted, even in cases of rape and incest, like just the, the fringes, if people leave and they become independents, which has been happening in American politics, then you're left right. with the fringes running the party. And it's, sh- it's the same thing in religious situations, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're seeing, you know, more and more people are identifying as none of the above, religiously speaking, right? right? right. So and, it's kind of
0: like being a political independent.
1: Right because they're saying, I know that there's something there worth talking about, but I don't like the way these people are talking about it. You know, I mean, I find all the time people will be surprised to discover what I do for a living, that I'm willing to entertain the idea that I don't have it all worked out. Well, what do you think? I Because I don't believe what you believe I'm going to hell? No, I, I don't think that, you know, and people are shocked because they almost have despaired of finding anyone in a religious tradition who doesn't exclude them if they don't you know, march in lockstep on every point.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, it should be obvious to anybody listening why I've brought you on this podcast, because we share a very similar sense here that if we can't put forward uh, a sensible option of faith for people who have thought through a certain set of questions or are asking a certain set of questions, if we can't articulate something that is to the task, then people will leave. And one way of saying this is that um, unbridled certainty is not to the task once people really start looking at the evidence around them.
1: That's absolutely true. I think the certain faith is actually a diminished one because it actually prevents you from doing the thing that faith is meant to do, which is to – open you up to something larger than yourself, to make you humble, and, you know, an absolute certainty and conviction that you've got it all worked out is the least humble thing we can do, right? It's kind of claiming equality with God. I've got the answer. Um, And so I think you're exactly right, that that kind of faith can't do what people need faith to do. It does it in the short term. It's like that product. And this was the point that Peter Rollins makes when he talks about this, is it gives you that hit where you feel good that you've got it, but you have to keep going back and getting another one every week.
0: I was literally just thinking that. I. I it, it puts me in mind of um, a friend of mine. She says that growing up around the dinner table uh, – and her, her parents are like conservative messianic Jews. Okay. And around the dinner table, the two things that they would talk about constantly were the second coming of Christ, which is kind yeah. of a generational thing. Her dad is just that age. Right, Uh, and then the other was basically assurance of salvation, and Mm -hmm. you you do have to wonder if you're talking about assurance of salvation once or twice a week for thirty years, how (laughs) assured are you? (laughs) Right, Right? like so. There's obviously something about that that it's not. It hasn't taken. It's not sticking. It is a. It is a kind of like oh, I love the feeling I get. When I talk about being assured of my salvation, I'll keep talking about how assured I am. But if I was assured, why would I talk about it?
1: Right, right. It's an uncomfortable reliance on grace almost. Yeah, it's –
0: and
1: I think that's what you you see that, which is why um, uh, there's a draw for those services and those religious expressions where that can be doled out. But you do have to keep going back to get it because it doesn't last. Sooner or later, the world intrudes and then you – doubt something. You think, oh, I got to, you know, go call my sponsor and get back to my certainty train kind of thing. I think in the end, what happens is then you spend an inordinate amount of time perfecting your beliefs, perfecting the, your creedal understandings, perfecting all of your assurance, and then you're not actually doing Christianity you know, or doing faith. You're not doing anything. You're just constantly making sure you're okay and, and not doing the work that It's not the task that you were saying. It's it's not up to the task. And this is what I spend a fair amount of time in the book doing: is just deconstructing the reality that certainty can be obtained, you know, and just and, but also looking at why it is we crave it and and naming it. I think it's important to say, I mean, it's not that I don't want certainty. Of course, I do. I would love to have it, right? But I don't. So the question is, I have to learn how to live with that, and I have to learn how to make that actually something meaningful and productive. And I think it actually is more meaningful and more productive than the certainty part. But I'm a human being. I crave security and stability and, and food and shelter and all those things. And so, yeah, I want to be certain that those things will be there tomorrow morning. Right. You know, and so I think that's where that comes from and helping people to feel safe is probably the first way to get people to feel that they can embrace their uncertainty. And so from a religious point of view, admitting that uncertainty is okay is I think the first step in allowing someone who is looking to their faith for that absolute certainty to think, okay, well then I can be a part of this community. I can, I can have this faith and still acknowledge the one thing that where I, you know, fear to tread.
0: Yeah. So um, we're going to, we're going to pause on faith. We're going to talk about certainty for a while first. Sure. So I've got a handful of questions kind of about certainty itself and psychology, and then we're going to get into applying that to questions of faith. So let's let's dive in in the darkest way possible, which is the way that you dive in in your book, (laughs) which I appreciate. There's only one thing that's certain, right? And that is death. Or maybe you could say, I think therefore I am. Existence is certain, and then the next thing is death. Right. So what role in your mind does the certainty of death play in all other potential certainties or certainty games that we engage in?
1: The first way is that it's looming in the back of our minds, whether we're aware of it or not, even creatures who are not really self-aware do things to avoid dying. You know, they try to stay alive.
0: Anything biological has kind of a will to live, it, it appears.
1: Right. So anything that interferes with the ability to live safely and securely creates anxiety, right? So, and, you know, the fight or flight reflex and get out of here, either eliminate that threat or run away from it until you can feel safe, right? And so the the just basic day-to-day certainty that we crave, I think is an outgrowth of our need for that ultimate stability to know that we'll be okay and that we'll live.
0: That really then, quick, that's interesting about the fight or flight. I've never thought of it that way. I've never thought about why fight or flight. i just... I'm aware of the limbic system and I'm aware of the adrenaline it gives me or whatever, but that makes sense that you either – you have to get rid of this threat either by running or fighting it so that then you can go back to equilibrium so you can be at peace again. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah.
1: Right, and that's why you know modern life is so stressful because we can't you know just run away from that staff meeting or punch everyone in the staff <laughs> meeting you know we have to deal with it and it creates anxiety because we don't know how to resolve and get that sense of stability back. Um, so that's just on the unconscious level, and then on the conscious level, those of us who are self-aware, we are consciously aware that there will be a day we will cease to exist, and but we don't know when that's going to happen, we don't know how it's going to happen, and. That creates an uncertainty that I think haunts us, so even you know, on a semi-conscious level. We are aware of the reality of death in most of the things that we do.
0: So in your book, you, you seem pretty convinced by this particular school of psychological thought that I'm not super familiar with. So that's why I'm framing it that way, because I can't vouch for it myself. Yeah. Uh, it's called uh, Terror Management Theory. Yeah. Um, can you explain terror management theory and, and maybe motivate for us your, your confidence in the explanatory power?
1: Uh, a student of mine, when I was telling her about this portion of the book, and she said, oh, that's just like terror management theory. And so I, <laughs> I looked that up. And So uh, it was more
0: that you came to these – you kind of came to this more intuitively and then you figured out there's a name for it. By the way, I appreciate right. that. This is the difference. Right. Not everybody reads – I'm not trying to brag. Not everybody right. reads academic stuff. Yeah. If you're reading academic stuff, you have to name the theories you're talking about because you have to kind of credit the people who thought of them. In popular right. books, people don't do that. They just say things. They don't necessarily <laughs> right. attribute anything. And so right. it can it can feel kind of weird, but like it's actually really healthy to say, yeah, I am an millennialist" or whatever it is. Like <laughs> anyway, that's a pet peeve. We don't have to spend any time on that. Uh, but so you, so you name it and then she said, oh, that sounds like terror management theory
1: right, and and the basic theory is that everything we do is done in light of this existential dread that we carry, knowing that we're going to die. And so we try to mitigate that dread um, by doing almost anything. It answered a question that I had years ago, I remember thinking, you know, people are always asking, what's the meaning of life?" To me, that was the less interesting question. The other one was, why do we build buildings and why do we bother building cities and railroads and things like that? You know, why are we so busy? And I and the answer that this theory gives is it's a way of staving off the existential extinction. You know, it's a way of staving off death by establishing something permanent or by – creating a you know a a life where you feel more secure and you can push that dread off a little bit more and that dovetailed with Irvin yalom's you know the four fears you know and one of them is the fear of death but there's other fears that um play into our psychology that certainty addresses that the more certain we have the more we can feel that we're in control of this environment and these circumstances and so on um and that's so I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it, was that the, that there is this dread, whether we're aware of it or not, that operates subconsciously and consciously uh, to drive us toward, impels us toward a kind of certainty-seeking.
0: Another thing that you talk about is something that comes up decently often on this show. It came up a whole lot on my previous podcast, Depolarize, which was more focused on politics and, and some psychology. In Jonathan Haidt's language, it's the rider and the elephant. In Daniel Kahneman's language, it's systems one and two of our thinking. Mm-hmm. What they mean by that is basically there is an unconscious part of us that does very quick, very automatic, almost reflexive thinking and decision-making and and, and really has a kind of a leaning. That's why uh, Haidt calls it an elephant. And then there is the other part of us that occasionally thinks – that is system two or the writer. And that's like deliberative, rational, you know, if someone's deciding which school to send their kid to, they're using system two, but if they are, I don't know, uh, choosing what to watch on Netflix, they're using system one or, or whatever. Right. Um, what role do those, does that distinction between those two parts of our, our cognition play when it comes to talk of certainty and uncertainty?
1: Well, what I found so interesting about Kahneman's thinking is how how much we are actually using System 1, the snap judgment system, when yeah. we think we're using System 2. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things he points out is that the energy that System 2 requires is greater um, in terms of just brain processing and also just time. And so he said, you know, in effect... If you want to doubt it takes energy to doubt you know and so yeah. the the reality is our brains it's just cheaper to be certain you know it's, it's just easier to snap into black and white thinking the either or you know it's got to be this got to be that because the other one takes more energy and more time and so i think what that means is that even when we want to embrace uncertainty our brains are kind of conspiring against us because it's quicker easier, cheaper to go the certainty route. And so that's just something I think to be aware of. I mean, I think that's the point of his whole book is to make you aware that these systems are operating when you think you're being deliberative, you're not. And so it's to remind people certainty is easier to slip into even by accident than uncertainty is. And that's why uncertainty takes some conscious work.
0: That's also why uh, yours is such an uphill battle, right? Yeah. Just oh, it's, this is this is such a deep deep thing. I'm just I'm trying to stay on track here, but I'm becoming so personally uh, overwhelmed and frustrated and uh, and and thoughtful about about all of this because it is such an intractable thing. It's so hardwired into us. It is hard sometimes to have much uh, optimism about it. Do you, do you struggle with that yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, in order for anyone to buy what I'm offering, they have to already kind of embrace my open my first premise, which is the the doubt is okay, right? And so that's why you know when people ask me what the uh, elevator speech is or what those, I always tell them the book is about the unavoidable nature of doubt and why that's a good thing. So basically reminding people that doubt is unavoidable, that you, if you think you can run away from it, you're, you're in error. I mean, everyone doubts. Yeah. And, and so by saying it that way, this is an unavoidable thing, it's an unavoidable reality, but that's also the good thing. And then it kind of pushes people into the place of discomfort, but immediately then tells them that there's a way out that's actually not out of the doubt, but a way out of the despair of doubt.
0: One more question on the psychology before we uh, turn our gaze at how it interacts with faith. Another phenomenon you mentioned in the book that I'm interested in is called need for closure. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it's another one of these psychological needs that we have where we like resolution to things. and uh the world doesn't actually give us a lot of resolution. I think that's why stories and narratives are so appealing is because they have an ending to them. Um, And so when we don't know what the end is, when we don't know whether something resolves, there's a part of us that remains really unsatisfied and and anxious about that. And so what happens then is that we will sometimes provide an ending or provide an explanation where no such ending or explanation exists because – being wrong about that is less problematic for us than having this gap in our perception or gap in our understanding. We'd rather have the a, an incorrect answer than no right answer.
0: This is so interesting because it lines up really well with something I have been reading about and thinking about a lot recently. Uh, John Hott, the philosopher from Georgetown, has a book called The New Cosmic Story, and then before that, a book called leaning resting on the future and i'm, I'm going to have him on the show i think to talk about this but the idea is that um there are different ways of looking for ultimate answers they're sort of looking to the past this is what a lot of physicists and cosmologists will do and biologists will do this and then uh, also when we go to like adam and eve uh, when we go right. there for our ultimate explanation that we're, we're looking to the past then there's looking to the eternal present this is what, like, most Eastern philosophy and a lot of Western religion does. Like, no matter what time you are in history, you have access to sort of the eternal present of God. And then if you can plug into that, then you can transcend your time and place and your culturedness and your embeddedness and all of that. And he's like, neither of those really work anymore, given what we know about the universe. We need to look to the future. We should mm-hmm. expect God pulling us from the future and what he says that does is that puts you in the middle of a story as opposed to outside of a story, eternal present, where you right. can say, well, we know the end of the story because we can we can latch onto the eternal present, or the story already happened and we know what it means. And so here's the wrapping up. There's two things that I think about when I think about him saying, if we recognize that the universe is unfinished it's the story is still being told we don't know how it ends number 1 is that that does seem to explain the data of our experience better it right. seems it seems illogical it seems to not be a good creation it seems to you know or we we seem to have uh hints of both good and bad and the resolution is not at all clear and so in that sense it's it's powerful because it has better explanatory power over certain parts of our experience on the other hand what you're bringing me uh of of mind is that it is tremendously taxing to yeah. acknowledge that you're in the middle of a story and that you don't know how it ends and you basically have to be willing to permanently suspend this need for closure for your whole life when you think about the most important thing to you your faith assuming that it is uh, and so i'm both heartened by this possible approach and terrified by it because it means i have to live in this middle space forever i don't know if you're familiar with his thought i kind of just sprung that on you but any response you have would be interesting
1: i'm i'm not but that's a really interesting way of looking at it and actually my own faith is very much driven by well it's apocalyptic but it's apocalyptic not in the hey, the UN is going to come in with black helicopters and, you know, and round us up into camps kind of thing. But in the sense that all like, you know, as a Christian, you know, all Christian history started or, or the Christian tradition started with Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That this, it's this future reality that is sort of pu- coming backward into the present and pulling us forward. So that resonates really powerfully with me. And I think it's why um, visions of hope are so powerful because they speak to a possible future is it certain to come? No, but might it, is it worth living for? Absolutely. Right. And so most I Christians
0: think... don't think of it the way you just said it though. Most 99% of Christians would not say, is it certain? No, they would say, uh, it's absolutely certain.
1: Well, something is certain. The idea that what is certain is the exact description that John of Patmos wrote down—that's sure, sure. the problem. Right? Yeah, that's it's That there is something. Sure. I mean, I think
0: I. I mean, that, I might that's, be. That's, I might differ from you here, Mark. I like obviously. I agree that uh, to say my interpretation of the Book of Revelation combined with the Book of Daniel is certainly going to happen is is silly, but. Right even even in my own place i i think of my faith as kind of vacillating on faithful days i have confidence that god will make all the apparently pointless suffering of the world make sense and worth it in some way and other days i'm like i don't know if i have that confidence and right. i have to live my life of faith without that kind of confidence but i wouldn't i don't think i have certainty in any of it at all not even that there will be some life next or, and so maybe I'm mishearing you a bit.
1: No, I I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I, I guess what I'm saying, I guess I said it badly in, in, in that I don't know that there is a certainty even in the broad strokes, because what that means is that's, in my mind, that's what faith is. Yeah. It's in trusting that there is something, even when you're not actually sure that it's there, yeah. and willing to live a life consonant with what that vision is. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's like if we come back and look at the resurrection, what was it? What happened? I don't know. But I know that there were a you know, some men and women in a room in Jerusalem who were hiding out fear of their lives, and then they went across the Mediterranean and changed the world, right?
0: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: something was there, something that was enough to say, let's go. So, right. that's enough, right? That this is the kernel of the faith, right? That there is. And so, I don't have to be even certain about what that was. I have a sense of what it was because the tradition gives us language to use. But I know it was something that was meaningful and powerful enough to change people's lives. And it still is changing people's lives. And that yeah. is the reality. And it's also that sense, like as you said, that God is going to make all things new. God is going to set all things right. How I that sure happens, so. what, it, what it looks like, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. On my worst days, I say, this is a thing that Christians believe. <laughs> <laughs> right. And sometimes that's all I can say. And I, you know, and I will... Keep trying to believe it, you know, uh, and, and, and living it, living as if it is going to come. Yeah.
1: See, to me, that is so much more powerful. You making a conscious choice to live into something you're unsure of than the person who by rote or by absolute mental certainty just says, well, yeah, that's just the way it's going to work out. And I'm just going to go ahead and do it.
0: I totally that agree of- with that. I totally agree with that. Although there, there are people who transcend both of those possibilities, and those are the often older people who have chosen to live in the way of Christ for so long that they are certain in a, in a kind of a way they're, they're, they're certain in their bones through, through muscle memory, their, their spiritual muscle memory. I'd like to get that kind of certainty. I don't want the cheap certainty. If we can borrow Bonhoeffer's cheap grace versus costly grace, I'll take the costly certainty maybe by the time I'm 75, but I don't want the, I don't want the bullshit cheap certainty.
1: No, and I think the the people you're talking about have, in effect, trained themselves up in faithfulness, what actual faithfulness looks like, and that they have been living faithfully, that that has given them faith, in effect. And I, I think that is the more rewarding kind.
0: But so many people want the word faith to actually mean something closer to certainty. And they'll quote, there's like one verse in Paul about don't doubt because that's the you know opposite of faith or something. I'm I'm saying it wrong, um, yeah. But that gets quoted a lot in, in those situations. W- what is going on, like linguistically, or um, I don't know, w- with these mental constructs of why specifically people want the word faith to mean the word certainty?
1: So I think part of this is an English problem. In mm, that, interesting. Um, the. Greek and the Hebrew words for faith also mean things like trust, but they can also be translated believe. And when you get into concepts of belief, people are far more likely to want to be certain about what they believe. Whereas trusting carries with it a A degree of unknowing. That is the whole point of a trust fall when you do it is that you're not facing the person when you fall, right? Um, When you make a commitment in love, you can't know that the person is going to live up to your hopes and expectations, but you make the commitment. That's the loving, trusting act. So there's a couple of different reasons. One is the the sort of the language problem. The other, I think, is a post-Enlightenment Protestant problem, is that when we reduced truth to that which could be revealed through Scripture, then we reduced faith, in effect, to a set of propositions that needed to be accepted and affirmed, because that's where we were deriving all of our authority from. And we cast out any mystical tradition, we cast out the, the, the inspired tradition of the Church, like, it all became, how well do you understand this text? And, and and textual thinking tends to trend toward the certain because you can read it and you can make sense of it, and there it is in front of you.
0: And, and the I reason you're that... saying enlightenment mixed with Protestantism is because enlightenment is look, we're gonna go, we're gonna go from rational first principles. We're gonna work right. our way very carefully through these concepts, and then Protestantism, we're gonna make it sola scriptura. It's the text only. We're not looking at the pope or the bishops. We're not looking at church history. Um, and then it's not until really, Wesley, that we get reason and experience coming in as, as, so we're not there yet. So it's early Protestantism mixed with the Enlightenment.
1: Right. And I don't think it's an accident that you tend to see some, the more fundamentalist um, portions of Christianity in those Protestant sects that are pretty much sola scriptura. Right. um, Because they need that certainty, because that's the only thing, that's the only leg that they're theological discernment stands
0: on well my my operating definition for fundamentalism these days and and maybe there is a maybe there's a different kind of fundamentalism in a in a less literate age but today i just say it is a religious system that holds a particular text as completely unassailable and perfect in the translation that we hold in our hands and so it, it in my yeah. the way i work with it is it there has to be a text without a text it doesn't there are no fundamentalists in the world today that don't look to a text as right. their perfect source. Right. There might be Which- another kind you could imagine, you know, in a preliterate time or something.
1: Right, but what fascinates me about that is so often the fundamentalism doesn't actually read the text. I mean, questions about you know what what, are the, what is the order of creation? You know, you're looking, you've got two accounts in Genesis, and they don't reconcile easily. But right. that's not a problem for the fundamentalist. They have a, they actually have an extra textual answer for that, right? They uh, the different gospel accounts of the of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Or uh, how long,
0: yeah, one day or 40 days after the resurrection, how long did Jesus hang around? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Right. So the bigger problem is that the text that even they're engaging with doesn't actually exist, that they've kind of created a construct and then they're loyal to that, but they're not actually talking about the actual biblical
0: text. Yeah. Well, fundamentalists are a little too easy. Uh, Let's take on someone our own size here. Sure. Um, They're just too easy to argue against. (laughs) <laughs> but this is this is kind of fundamental, it's adjacent. I love this thing you did in the book. You actually did some research. You did some sort of Google analytics on Bible mm-hmm. answers. Right. Um, yeah. And so there's this huge industry, at least online anyway, of sort of Bible answers. What did you find in, in that research? What I
1: found was really interesting is that the majority of the questions that people are looking for are questions of either sort of – you know, what is the right belief on some issue or what is the right practice or or actually just these arcane questions, you know, about the text itself. Who did Cain marry? You know, questions like that. Um, And so.
0: Well, that's interesting. So it's almost like it's either give me the answer or give me the reason I can still look to this thing to give me the answer. (laughs) because These are the problems I'm having. Cain's wife, for instance. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So what's interesting is that all of the questions are the kind of question that could be answered in some way. I found very, very, actually, I don't think I found any in just sort of diving down in the the more popular questions, um, questions that had anything to do with meaning. They were all, I think there was one question that said something like, you know, what is the importance of the resurrection, which, okay, that's getting at why, you know, but everything else was really you know, is it a sin to do this? Is it a sin to do that? Why aren't there dinosaurs in the Bible? You know, those kinds of things. You know, why do men have nipples? I think that was the favorite question that I came across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a big one. You know, it's a big one, right? Because there's an answer that can be given. And I think that's why this industry is so successful is because it is meeting that need. People want their questions answered and answered definitively and decisively.
0: We talked a little bit already about why certainty in general as a psychological thing is so strong. The pull of it is so strong. Is there anything you can add to religious certainty? Like, Is, is there a reason that that in particular is, is a strong pull?
1: I think because part of the way that um, religion is marketed, and so that whole God is a product thing is one of the ways religion is marketed. Um, And if God is a product, then that product had better work, you'd better be certain about your product. Um, In the same way that religion is also marketed as a resolver of doubt, as an answer of questions, it's marketed as, you know, a way to banish your doubt. So I think what happens is, the way religion is presented, and this is, you know, the Joel Ostians of the world, and this is the megachurches, they're all selling a product that is designed to smooth out your life, um, you need to have certainty in order for that to work, that it's not actually being marketed as a kind of dynamic system of reflection and engagement and mystery and wonder. It's saying, oh, you have a problem? Here's the answer to that problem. And I think that's where we're getting that, that drive for religious certainty.
0: Let me play a little devil's advocate here, though. Sure. So let's say that you are a experimental psychologist and you are, um, consulting with the truth campaign, you know, that orange, the orange campaign to get people youth to stop smoking yes. and you're consulting all the relevant research. And you're saying, look, I think if we, if we phrase things this way, um, of all these 20 million youth who will see this advertisement, 5% more effectiveness, you know, based on the research, uh, is that not what mega church pastors are doing? Are they not simply using psychological principles to get something into their lives, which even secular psychologists will admit religion increases happiness. It increases self-esteem. It p- makes people more involved in their communities. It, it strengthens their friend bonds. Um, I mean, why not just look at it that way and say, hey, fair play.
1: You know what that's I mean that's as reasonable an explanation and a justification as <laughs> anything else but I That's but obviously I to,
0: not what they think they're doing you know right. right it's
1: also right it's also not what they think they're doing but it's also not what and you know i'm speaking from a christian context not what we are called to do right jesus did not say go into all the nations you know baptizing them you know so that they feel good about themselves right or so that they have more productive work and personal life you know the whole point is to witness to the radical transformation of love and grace in the world and that requires work not just membership so I mean, that's fine as an abstraction, like religion, but that's not what I think the gospel is actually requiring of us. And to sell it that way is actually, I think, to diminish it, to diminish the real impact that any religious system can have on someone's life, and helping to discern meaning in a way that is powerful. And the other thing is, it doesn't work. Like, that's the other thing. It's like we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, you have to keep going back for that hit, Right? So it's not a one-time fix. It's, I mean, this is a lifetime subscription that you have to get, and it's in constant need of, uh, you know, like app upgrades that you're getting on your phone. You know, you have to constantly get the new thing in order for it to keep working properly. Whereas the more authentic thing, I think, the the willingness to embrace doubt and uncertainty leads you to a kind of faith. The one you were describing earlier that helps to build up that muscle memory of what faithfulness looks like. Um, that can be really, really transformative.
0: Like on the one hand, of course, I agree with you, but there is, there are, there's two things here. The first is there is a kind of attention because the further I go into more liberal forms of Christianity, more liberal theologies, uh, Human flourishing comes more and more to the fore as one of the goals of the Christian mm-hmm. life, one of God's goals for us. And so that there is a tension there. Now, I'm not saying that giving people simple answers a la Dr. Oz is actually going to help them flourish. But we do need to pay attention to some of the data, at least on like, yeah, they're happier. They're giving more money and time. <laughs> You know, I mean, I don't know. So now also those are really broad groups that are being studied and you could maybe get more granular and say, well, what about the people who are actually engaging in contemplative practices? And they're a subset of that group. And how much of the gains are coming from this smaller group? That's like really plugged in, you know? So there's all kinds of in-depth questions. The other thing is, I think I'm, I tend to think of it as kind of a two-tiered situation at the top is the best possible outcome and what your your book and hopefully this podcast are pointing people toward, which is like the real world is racked with uncertainty. And out of that uncertainty, just like Abram, we are called to follow God. And something extraordinary is available to us. Really a kind of a in in a mystical contemplative sense a direct pipeline to the creator of the universe and that that actually doesn't work with all of this kind of prepackaged consumer christianity they those are going to always be at friction with each other they can't really coexist right but very few people are ever going to do that now i i would say of the listeners of this show a big proportion of them are on that path but that's not that many listeners of this show if when i compare it to the number of people who go to mega churches in the United States. uh, And even if I compare it to the top podcasts in the Christianity charts, um, it's mostly big time mega pastors who are not all of them are necessarily dealing in certainty. I don't want to impugn a bunch of individual pastors who try and do their best. Right. But like there is a second tier, which is uh, if you're never going to get that, can you at least have the sort of benefits of civil religion and, Cultural Christianity, because your life will be better that way. than – you right. know, like, like they, you know, you can map church attendance and the opioid crisis. I mean, you can map any of these things. And like, if you're honest about the fact that most people are not going to get to tier one, well, do you want them to have tier two? It's better than nothing. That was a really uh, long interlude. I'm. Right. I
1: <laughs> no, I mean. I think you're right. That is better than nothing. And I guess the folks I wrote the book for are the ones who aren't comfortable in that status quo. And those are the people right. I started
0: the podcast for. It's th- This is right. why it's so obvious that you're on this show. Yeah,
1: Right. <laughs> but also, I think it's interesting to reflect over time how in almost every religious tradition, there is somebody at some point, you know, like an origin or a, like an Ibn Rushd or somebody like that who says, you know, there's basically a couple of ways to look at religion. There's like the simple way. And most people are going to look at it in the simple way. And then there's going to be people who look at it in the allegorical way. And there's people going to look at it in the spiritual way. Then they're going to be the people who really get it. And you're thinking, who are those people? If you've already transcended sort of the allegorical and the spiritual. But they're like, yeah, but that's not most people. Most people are going to just do their own thing and go along with the simple explanations and the easy stories and all that kind of thing. So... I don't know that this is a battle that can be won ultimately, but for those who need it, I think it needs to be waged. And, and so this resource needs to be put out there.
0: Yeah, it might just be that I'm still in my 30s, but I feel stuck between... Obviously, my, what I call tier two is not going to cut it for me. Uh, and I have just dipped my toes into tier one. But if we want to separate tier one into you know four tiers or whatever, I'm on the first of the four and just <laughs> right. waiting to get like I'm right. like, please can I get all the way up it's probably just going to take a while I've got a question for you do you remember a christian punk band from Santa Cruz California called Craig's Brother It's okay if you don't but as for me and my friends we loved Craig's Brother their guitarist, Adam Nye, ended up going to seminary in Scotland and becoming a professor. And he have, he and I have stayed loosely in touch. And he responded to something I wrote about inerrancy on Facebook recently. We got into a little chat and we realized that we should just record a real conversation about this topic. He went into college looking for a way to not believe inerrancy and left believing it. And as you know, I'm not an inerrantist, but we had an interesting and of course, very civil conversation about each of our motivations and intuitions around this incredibly central and usually quite divisive topic. And that conversation is the latest patron only bonus episode, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. If you want to join the Patreon, here are some clips of my conversation with Adam to wet your whistles, so to speak. So that's interesting. So you went in there looking for like something else that worked better than the mm-hmm. kind of inerrancy that you had held up till that point. And then yep. you ended up coming out with like a version of inerrancy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's right. Um, within Protestant scholarship, we should be clear that the reformers did not. They did react negatively to the medieval uh, allegorical tradition, but they did not react to that negatively by withdrawing to a naive literalism. They had a rich typological way of reading the text that um, was was certainly not naive.
0: I, I tend to be of the view that, like, yeah, a lot of shit has changed in the last 175 years. We know things that they didn't know. They didn't have archaeology. They didn't know the size of the universe. Uh, they didn't know a, a, so many things that they don't necessarily bear on questions of salvation, especially,
2: like I, I've heard changing attitudes, but in terms of things we know about the ancient world better than the ancient world knows about, I would question the inerrancy of modern research methods on gaining us that kind of new knowledge. I, I'm not sure we really have that better of a leg up on the ancient world than the ancient world did.
0: Um, I, so assuming an evolutionary
2: you know, account of human origins, would, would you yes. attribute sin to non-human animals?
0: I think that's a really hard and interesting question i'm not I'm not uh opposed to some notion of it I think that sin the capacity for sin probably develops as the capacity for will and choice and oh, determination okay. and and future outlookability you know as all that develops, you're more and more able to sin a little kid can sin like a kid can lie but a kid a, can't a, a human kid yes yeah a human kid can lie but a human kid can't like engineer the holocaust like they can't, you know what I mean? Like they're just, they are just—they can't sin sure. that high. They can't—they uh, can't plan out the, uh, on the mer- uh, a perfect crime. You know what I mean? Like, so they're not it, as
2: effective in the results of their sin, but they yeah, have, like they can they still can have sin. evil intent. Yeah, yes.
0: and I feel like our cat like, sometimes knows that she's doing the wrong thing. Like I don't know, maybe that's it. I, I don't, you know.
2: You're right. He invokes a hierarch- uh, uh an anthropological hierarchy, backed up by like divine will but to creation. say that, like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. He invokes that in order to say that this is how this ought to play out in a cultural sphere. But the church has been pretty comfortable translating that, like the way that works out culturally. Yeah, for a pretty long time.
0: Um, no, I, I agree. And and the church is going to increasingly become comfortable uh, working out the homosexuality thing and, and calling that cultural. Which I knew that's even where that though, was going next. Even though I don't want to go there, I don't think that that's okay. the right argument. By the way, I, and okay. I I did an episode yeah. on it. I think of. I think a far better argument is to actually call out the misogyny of the time and to include women, slavery and homosexuality as stemming from the same basic societal assumptions. I know you're not going to be convinced by that argument, I can tell, but that's a better (laughs) argument than Matthew Vines' argument of like, he's talking about pederasty, not sex. Like, no, he really thought that like women were lower than men and so did everybody else. But where,
2: where where I've come more, I guess, maybe in the last like six, seven years is just to say that like, I, I, fi- I find myself needing to guard more and more the idea that I'm critiquing a portion of scripture by the fullness of revelation revealed in Christ.
0: So to hear the whole thing, if you like what you heard there and all the other bonus episodes and to engage regularly with myself and the whole Facebook You Have Permission crew, Join the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dan Koch, or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click Become a Patron. It's five bucks a month. But if you can't afford it in this season of your life, there are some scholarships available, thanks to some very generous folks who have reached out privately to me. So if that's you, email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. And if you are a patron and your spouse is interested in the conversation, please have your spouse join the Facebook group and get in on the action there. On the Facebook group, it's patrons only. It's where I often field questions for guests. I field the questions that I answer at the end of episodes, other bonuses, whatever, join it. Other bonuses, whatever, perhaps not the most delicate way to advertise the Patreon, but you get the point, uh, back to my conversation with Mark. Okay, so you have you have a chapter called Faith as a Metaphor, and metaphor uh, is a really important uh, topic in the book. So yeah. what does that mean, faith as metaphor, and if you want to say anything about metaphor in general?
1: Sure. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is the ubiquity of metaphor, not only in religious language, but in all language, ultimately, and the significance of that. Because what a metaphor is— is concrete language used to describe abstract concepts. And there's no way around it. In fact, the fact that I just said concrete language is itself a metaphor because there's no other way to explain that. Um, But what that means is the thing we're actually talking about is not what we're able to describe. It's pointing in a direction. And so the religious language that we use is metaphor. It's not capturing the reality, it's pointing us in the direction of the reality. And I think where we go astray often in religion is that we forget that. We forget that we are meant to be following a sign towards something, and we stop at the sign. But I think it goes beyond even the language that we use, that faith itself, that religious faith, is is an entire metaphorical construct that the even the things that we do in a religious tradition are kinds of metaphors. I, you know, I talk about the fact that the Orthodox stand, throughout, or the Russian Orthodox stand. That's the posture of resurrection. You know, right? that we, that the Muslims prostrate themselves on the ground. That is a metaphor of submission, which is what Islam means, right? So you see these, these physical, these verbal, these theological metaphors that are all meant to be pointing us beyond ourselves, beyond our ordinary experience, to something deeper. And where we keep getting it wrong is that we get stuck on the metaphors, and we argue about their meanings and their literal interpretations, and, you know, does this rule, you know, apply here, and what does that mean, and what conference does this, and what committee should do that, you know, because we've forgotten that this is all a system that's meant to be pointing us beyond ourselves to something greater.
0: Wow. <clears throat> That's a mic drop moment right there, Mark. That was fantastic. <laughs> sure. I wanted to talk about math and science, uh, and those are their own chapters in, in the book. And, and we can point people back to the book, but can you say a little bit about those two things? Cause those are the things that we tend to think in the popular p- imagination. Well, we have certainty in math and science, right?
1: Right, right. Two plus two equals four. It never yeah. equals five, you know? Um, And I think in most part, mathematics is precise. The problem is it's not intuitively understood. We can't speak to each other in mathematics. We can't describe how you feel about someone in mathematics. This is what gets back to
0: language is always metaphorical. Right, right.
1: Right. Right. So anything meaningful has to be communicated in language. And even the math is communicated in symbols. We have to attach symbols to these concepts in order to use it. So we're already a layer removed from whatever reality there is. You know, uh, I read this fascinating book um, by Mark Green on, on, you know, is God a mathematician, I think it's called. And the book is basically asking the question of, is math actually a thing or is it something we created that just happens to work? And it's a fascinating, you know, question. Is there actually a concept of five that exists in the universe, you know, or is it just something we wrote down of five ones, you know? Um, And so I think there is even an uncertainty in mathematics as precise as it is. But the problem is it's not really useful to us for the things that matter to our human experience. And then when it comes to science, There's a popular understanding about what science is and what science does. And then there's what actually science is and what science does. And when you look at the scientific process, you discover there's a ton of uncertainty from the very beginning and that – Scientists aren't trying to come up with certain answers. They're trying to come up with likely answers that someone else can dive deeper into. Right. They're trying to disprove someone else's certain answer. Right? They're trying to say, "Well, I'm not so sure about that." So that the entire enterprise of science is actually built on probabilities and built on maybes and built on prov- you know provisos. You know, you run an experiment a hundred times and you get a certain result 80% of the time. Does that mean it'll always work out, or just the hundred experiments you did? And the scientists don't claim to have the certainty. I think it's we look to science for certainty because we're looking for certainty wherever we can find it. And science, especially as it's popularly portrayed, gives those answers. I mean, in the media and TV, science is always giving you the answer to something. It's the murderer. It's the, you know, it's the the cure for the disease. It's whatever it is, science gives it to you. Real science doesn't actually work like
0: that. No, it's always probabilities of increasing or decreasing likelihood and And always tentative conclusions. Um, And and that's good. That's that is actually the best way to know things that can be empirically verified or measured rather. Um, Let's say a a little bit more about language. So you talked about how it's metaphorical, but you also talk about how it is ever changing. So Mm -hmm. words are always changing. English dictionaries have to be updated every decade or less because it's just this amorphous thing. What does that mean for the conversation about certainty and uncertainty?
1: Well, if the very medium that we use to communicate to one another, not only our experiences of the world, but our observations of it is in constant flux, then there is an unavoidable uncertainty at the heart of even the most straightforward conversations. Um, I mean, so much of The conversation that you and I are having right now is actually facilitated by the fact that you and I can see each other. And so we can read some of the non-textual cues. Totally. You know, I asked to
0: use video, even though we're not going to use the video because it makes for a better conversation. It sounds more human. Yeah,
1: right. Because we can pick up on the things that go unsaid. Whereas if I look away for a minute and I miss what you're saying, I might misunderstand. And that's just an ordinary conversation. We're not even talking about greatly complicated matters here before I was a minister, I was a lawyer. So I'm trying to build a case, you know, I'm trying to like, I'm, I'm saying, all right, you want certainty? Well, let's look at the religion that you're looking to certainty. That's
0: why I like and talking to you so much. You were a lawyer. You know, <laughs> it <makes sense. laughs>
1: and it's, it's not there. And then like, well, let's look at the language we're using to talk about the world. It's not there either. And let's look at the science and the the world itself, like all of that. It's a way of kind of, digging deeper to see where that certainty is that we're all looking for, and it just isn't there. And language is, I think, one of the early and most convincing clues that it can't be had, is that you can't guarantee that two people understand each other in an ordinary conversation, how are you guaranteeing that you have somehow figured out what the universe is telling you at any given minute?
0: Well, the answer to that, to play devil's advocate is (laughs) God in God's great love and provision supernaturally ensured that this text would not have any errors, whatever that means. Now you still have to unpack that, but that's the, that's the answer. And so how do you deal with that response?
1: Again, that's one of those questions where I wonder if the person who says it has ever read the text. The text clearly has errors in it. I mean, there are lines of omission. There are times where the scribes have copied, you know, the same verse twice, which, you know, raises an interesting question. If God gave an original perfect version, why did God not safeguard that version so that we could have access to it? You know, when you're actually – looking at the text, you discover it's not this Platonic ideal that people claim it is. It's actually a far messier, far more interesting text that you've yeah. been given. So even if the the Bible were completely inerrant in the text and in everything else, the reality is it's still written in human language because God needs to use human language to communicate to us. No human language is free of communication problems. So even in the most accurately written biblical Hebrew, there's gonna be another Hebrew speaker who interprets it differently than the person sitting next to them or listening hearing it read to them. I mean, when you someone has to read this to the people and whatever intonation they give that text is going to change the meaning of it. It also ignores the fact that reading is an act. We sometimes think of reading as passive, that would just the words come off the page at me. But you bring your own experience, your own interpretive lens, your own understanding of what this text is into your reading it. So it's not possible to read the text without interpreting it. And because of that, and the, the fact that we're making sense of human language, there's going to be uncertainty. Even if God were to have written by hand the perfect text, we could not be guaranteed to read it
0: perfectly. So we spent a lot of time basically slamming home the idea that uncertainty is completely unavoidable, but you make a turn Mm -hmm. and you want to say that uncertainty is actually an opportunity and you give four ways that it can be an opportunity. And so let's go through each of those a little bit. The first, the first way that you say uncertainty is an opportunity for faith is wonder. Mm
1: -hmm. If I think I have all the answers already, why should I go looking for any greater understanding, right? If I think I've got it all worked out, then my religious journey is over. Now it's just a question of perfecting my practice, making sure I don't slip up. It's all about just following the rules. If, on the other hand, I think I might not know that there is all to know, then I open myself up to new opportunities to learn and to grow and to experience God, to experience religious wonder and revelation in places I might not have otherwise expected. And that creates a real opportunity to encounter the world in a way filled with wonder.
0: It's not just wonder, it's also awe, right? Yeah, To just be awed by something. If you know where everything in the world fits, where it slots into your system, uh, when are you going to feel any awe? Right.
1: It's the ability to to see something new, you know, it can be something familiar, but you are able to look at it and say, I've never looked at it this way before and find something astonishing. I mean, trees, you know, I mean, we don't think about trees very much, but if you look at them and you just contemplate them and you you let yourself reflect on what this is and what it's doing, it's so incredibly fascinating But if you just think, well, yeah, day three, God made the trees, moving on, right, then there's no opportunity to actually wonder, well, what does it mean to make the trees? How did this evolve to do this? How did this grow into this niche to do that? That's so much more wonderful, I think, than than just having a certain understanding.
0: I think you end up attending to your system rather than attending to the world itself. Because the most important thing is to make sure that your system is still intact, as opposed to experiencing the world as it comes to you. That's
1: right. That's right. Because having the system you know, be perfected is far more important, as, as you say, than it is actually living dynamically. And I think that's the very problem that we get into um, with that.
0: I was smiling when you were giving that answer because it just reminded me so much of, uh, there's an older person in my life who um, has said... That when she was 14 and 17, she had two experiences where basically God said to her, this is the truth. And then at 17, confirmed the truth. And she knew that for the rest of her life, her job was to protect that and never let go of that. To basically be an ambassador of that revealed truth for the rest of her life. At 17. Right. uh, You know, and and she's a baby boomer. So she's now... um, in her middle age, late middle age, and like oh, I just can't even imagine that, but but that is and and, sh- and she's wonderful in many ways, uh, but like I see the effects of that, frankly, um, in other parts of her life, and I just think, oh, there isn't room for wonder or awe and and really, there's not room for the next of your four, which is mystery
1: right. the idea that we have it all worked out works directly against the reality that we cannot have had it all worked out. I mean, just the universe is so—I mean, just it's the the same wonder piece, but the idea that maybe there's a part of this we're not supposed to know, or that we cannot know, and that that is where God is actually more powerfully found. I mean, there's a reason every religious tradition eventually develops a mystical strain, right? And it's that sense that there is something beyond what we can know, and the acknowledgement that this is beyond what we can know is a powerful act itself, that it's just admitting that we don't know the answer to this. Um, and so being open to embracing mystery, being willing to be part of the story and not at the ending, right? Or, you know, is the saying, I don't know how this ends. And that's okay. That, I think, can be a liberating thing. And and the fact is, you know, uh, the mystics, they're onto something. You know, <laughs> the, the fact that mystics in every tradition also sound alike suggests to me that they're stumbling on some common, some universal truth that they have access to because they're willing to engage with mystery. Um, I think I told a story in the book about an Orthodox uh, service I went to and I'm a big admirer of the orthodox because they're so willing to embrace mystery and the pastor is a colleague of mine was giving a sermon in which he was talking about you know the sort of the challenges of the world and you know Um, violence and injustice. And he said, you know, this raises a lot of good questions. And Why does God allow evil? Why do the wicked prosper? Why is there suffering? And then he said and a perfectly legitimate answer is, I don't know. And then he just moved on with the rest of the sermon. And I remember being so impressed by that, thinking, I know so many Protestant churches where we would still be talking about the answer to that question, so that people felt like it was okay. And instead he said, there are mysteries that we can't understand and that's okay. And, and it was a wonderful moment.
0: Yeah. There's that need for closure again. Right. Um, now you've, you've already touched on this one a bit, but there might be a bit more to say the third way that uncertainty can be an opportunity is a deeper and more meaningful faith than for instance, I guess, certainty.
1: Yeah. and And this is where it comes down to What faith actually is. So if faith is about trusting and trusting that there is a purpose to all of this, trusting that there is meaning, trusting that there is love and grace and justice in the world, that these things can be brought to fruition, then you live your life in a way that is not only more fearless, I think, but it's it's bolder that you've actually done something by responding in faith because you have acknowledged what you do not know and said, nevertheless, I go forward. Nevertheless, I take that step out like Abram, right, that we are called out of this world to lead a faithful life. That only works if you're taking a risk, right? It's so it doesn't take a lot of faith to stand on a giant slab of granite, you know, it takes a lot of risk to cross a rickety rope bridge. One of those is a more meaningful act. You'll go home afterwards and say, I can't believe I did that. That was incredible, right? You know, Because you put something at risk and you, you took a chance and you, there was a payoff at the end. I think it's with love. I mean, uh, I mentioned Peter Rollins earlier. He sort of imagines two couples. One's got all the prenups. One's got all the contracts, all the guarantees. They know everything's going to work out. The other says, don't know how this is going to work. But together, it's you and me. And he says, of the two, only one of them is actually committing in love because they are willing to take a chance. They're willing to trust each other as opposed to have all the assurances ahead of time. So I think we know what experiences are more meaningful to us. We, we intuit that because we seek them out. And what uncertainty allows us to do is to incorporate that kind of trust, that meaningful expression in our lives of faith.
0: Yeah, something I have um, been a little bit fond of saying is like, suppose someone came to you and said, I'll tell you for certain that if you accept Christ right now, you will spend an infinite amount of time in heaven. And if you don't, you will spend an infinite amount of time in hell. Uh, Are you willing to take Jesus into your heart? Like, that's not faith. I don't know what that is. That's hedging your bet. Like, that's just a, a no brainer. That's like you literally have to be insane right. to say no to that.
1: Right. That's fire insurance. Right? Yeah, that's, that's not
0: yeah. there's nothing about that that's Now, that's of course not the only part of the, you know, on its best day that is a initial motivator to get people into a relationship with God that then is sort of self-authenticating, but that part of it it has nothing to do with faith. And and the more certain you are about that aspect of it, Oh, of right. course, I'm going to be in heaven instead of hell. Then that's not faith. That is right. just knowledge and a wise bet.
1: Right. And even if that is just the get you in the door, think of how you framed the entire faith experience by that invitation.
0: Yeah. Right. That, right.
1: In, that invitation is, here's the certain way to get into heaven and to avoid hell. It's not anything about you know, you are a beloved child of God, your life has meaning, you are, you can have access to a community who will care for you. The way it's framed from the outset is, you're going to die. And when you die, you're going to go to the good place or the bad place. This is the guaranteed way to get to the good place.
0: Yeah. So the fourth way, and then we're going to spend a little time on this. The fourth way that uncertainty can actually be an opportunity is dialogue with others.
1: This one, I think, speaks directly to the, the problem that people sometimes identify, um, because it's not fair to say that all religions say the same thing. That's an oversimplification, a well-meaning one, but an oversimplification. But also, then, you run into the the problem that others raise. So they're like, well, sure, I can be nice to my Hindu neighbor, but at some point, one of us has got to be right, one of us has got to be wrong. And so what I argue is that that is only true if we are speaking in literal statements that can be defended and defined and understood literally. If we're speaking in metaphors, then we might actually be talking about some deeper reality that neither of us fully comprehends, but that we're both pointing toward. And I think the illustration you use in the book is, if, if someone were to say to you, you know, uh, love is like tumbling headlong through a field of wildflowers. And I were to say, no, 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 you fool. It's like being drunk on the sweetest wine. You would <laughs> you would understand that both of those things can be true simultaneously. Right. But it's only when we take them absolutely literally that they become incompatible. So okay. you know,
0: here's a harder one, though. Sure. And I think about this one a lot. So if I were to be chatting with a Muslim uh and you you actually work at an interfaith center so you've done this and i i haven't had this conversation but yeah. if i were and then and uh they were to say no 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 uh jesus cannot be god because god is so everything that god mm-hmm. could never become human god is too good humans are too bad however they would frame it right um there's a way that i can see going yeah i i can affirm what you mean by that uh, right. And then I think that God violated precisely that thing as a way to show how much God loves us while still sort of affirming this essence about God. But that one is trickier, right? If I say that back, they might go, no, you're not affirming what I'm affirming. Because if you think that, that the incarnation happened, then you don't really believe this. So I, how do you deal with a, a trickier one like that?
1: I Well, first, with a lot of grace, right? I think it's worth getting people to push their own language? Well, what does that mean when you say this? Can that be literally understood? Um, And I think once you get people to be aware of the metaphors in their own tradition, because they're inescapable, there's not a religious tradition out there that is speaking in strictly literal terms, right? Because all language is
0: metaphorical, right? All
1: language is metaphorical and absolutely all religious languages. Yeah, especially religious language. you know, even when you say... God speaks. That's a metaphor. Unless you were willing to say that God has a vocal tract, God speaking has to be metaphorical, right? We're using human understanding of what speech is to talk about how it is God gets God's thoughts into our minds, right? And so you you have to use metaphorical language. So I think what you can say is there is a way that your understanding and my understanding can sit together. And perhaps it's when we dive deeper into the tradition to see what the truth is of our claim that we find the commonality. I find it fascinating, by the way, that both Christianity and Islam consider Jesus to be the Word of God. And that is differently understood, but there, there's a metaphor there that helps point us in a direction I think can be really interesting and, you know, sort of exploring that. Um but that's how I would go about it, is just invite the person to reflect on their own metaphorical system and then use that as a way of saying, perhaps there's a way that the metaphor I'm using is pointing us in a similar direction.
0: Is it okay if you get all the way down there and the metaphors are saying different things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to be the, the one that says, and then, then you have your answer. Right? That's not how I roll, clearly. Right? right? And I think it's okay to say, you know what, we don't know how to reconcile this, and that is also okay as long as I acknowledge that what I think my metaphor means and what I think my metaphor is pointing to is not an absolute certainty. I could be wrong about that. You know, the fact that I wasn't able to find some common ground doesn't mean that there isn't common ground to be found. It just might mean that I lack perfect knowledge and understanding, which is what I've been arguing the whole time.
0: Right. Right. So I have a bunch of these fantastic questions from patrons of the show, sure. and, and there's one that I need to ask right now because it, it follows from what we're talking about. And there's really actually two questions here. In your work in the Interfaith Center, are there universal principles that unveil themselves? And then the second question is, could we be certain of those universal principles that we see among faiths shared, or are we also uncertain about those principles?
1: That's an interesting question. I think there are universals. And I think that some of those universals trend toward what we would call love and justice and mercy. You know, compassion is a huge part of all of the religious traditions. Um, Seeing the sort of the God nature in each of us, that image of God. um, Again, another metaphor, of course. And I think that there are these common principles that, of course, you know, lots of people have looked at over time and then tried to fashion universalist religions around those. I mean, the Baha'i universalism, Unitarianism, right. things like that yeah. are all basically trying to distill down the universal essentials of these different traditions. So, and I think there's something there. The, the problem is this is in human experience, so it's limited by our own humanity. We don't know whether these are universal principles or universal human principles. Um, But I think it's, you know, we don't have to be absolutely certain about something to be able to rely on it and to, to make a reasonable commitment of trust in those principles. So I think if you see enough recurrence, you know, across different traditions, you can say there's something there about compassion. I think it's safe to rely on that.
0: Uh, yeah, but here's the uncertainty. I mean, this is this is kind of how I frame the ultimate question when I think about it is the, uh, being religious is to say there is meaning in the universe. There is some sort of purpose or some sort of narrative that will make sense at some point. And mm-hmm. to not be religious is to deny that, is to say, no, there is no such narrative. It is chance. And it might be beautiful, but it's not going right. anywhere. Um, But of course, I can't be certain about that because I'm in the middle of the story. I'm still alive. I'm using human language. I don't sufficiently understand human psychology at an individual or group level. I don't sufficiently understand anthropology to see how religions might form. You know, I don't have any certainty about any of that stuff. I have evidence. I have some proof in the pudding of the way certain people have lived. The more similar I might be to that person, the greater confidence I might have in that evidence I mean you just never you never get to certainty uh, so that's why I thought that those were interesting as kind of separate questions,
1: yeah, and I think that's true and you raised it, and I think it's really important distinction there's a difference between proof and evidence, but evidence is not nothing right. evidence is right evidence is something right um people are convicted all the time on evidence that isn't proof right totally. you know and, yeah. and I and I think there is something to that I mean I remember being a part of this debate one time on the existence of God you know atheist versus you know theist kind of thing and one of the things I pointed out was I cannot say that there is proof for what I believe I believe there is evidence for what I believe and you might not believe that that evidence is proof but you can't deny that there's evidence and, and I think that, that to me is where I come down is there's enough evidence that I feel like there's probable cause, right? We can move forward. There's something there to look at.
0: You really are a lawyer, man.
1: (laughs) It never leaves you. You never get rid of it. Yeah.
0: Um, Okay. So we got um, six or seven of these, uh, more of these patron questions. Uh, And I think I got some really good ones here. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not in any kind of order. So we're just going to, we're just going to pop around. This one says, I would love to hear Mark speak to the idea of remaining comfortable in being uncertain, given that mainstream Christianity seems to take such a firm stance on such a variety of issues?
1: Yeah, I think remaining un, remaining comfortable in uncertainty is really just a kind of honesty. It's a self-honesty. It's the acknowledgement and it's a kind of self-care, right? Because that's where we are is we are uncertain. And so remaining Uh, Remaining comfortable in that is a way of extending grace to yourself. It's a way of saying, it's okay for me to be here. It's okay for me not to know. It's okay for me to doubt the thing that this pastor or this church or this denomination or this religious tradition are saying. It's okay for me not to quite be sure that's how it all works out. Um, Because that is a way of taking care of yourself and owning who you are and acknowledging where you are, which I think is an important part of the love that we're supposed to have for ourselves that we would extend to others. If you met someone else who was feeling uncertain, you would extend that grace to them. You would say it's okay. You're, you'll you'll get you'll be fine. It's all right not to know this. We need to extend that to ourselves, and the way we do that is allowing ourselves to be comfortable in the unknowing. At the same time, it's also fair to say. We're not ever really going to truly be comfortable. That's, it's a function of our biology. It's a function of our physiology and all those things. Um, but that's where we are and it's okay to be there.
0: I have another question asking what your own practice is in, in staying comfortable in, in not knowing. And I, and this person, the way they phrased it is like, maybe especially when that's new, you've got the old comfort yeah. and you have the new uncertainty um, and do you have any practices that you do to actually work on this?
1: I think first and foremost, you have to name it if to say i'm- you know it's a kind of mindfulness on some level, right is the look this is I'm feeling really anxious right now. I wish I had the answer to this. I wish I knew, but I can't know. all I can do is just kind of day by day and and accept the fact that there are some things I cannot know. And or at least not know immediately or whatever. And I think it's a way of training yourself up, kind of like the folks you're talking about who after a lifetime of living lives of faith have come to a kind of assurance. It's by training yourself up to be okay in the uncertainty that you exercise those muscles a little more. And a lot of that requires, you know, again, more self grace. It's like, yeah, I'm feeling really anxious. I really want certainty. I really want a resolution to this but I can't have it, and it's okay that I can't, and just kind of reminding yourselves of those things. And there might be something here in this uncertainty that gives me another opportunity that I might have missed if I had all the answers right away, that maybe there's something here that I can discern and that I should keep my mind and my heart open to that.
0: I think there's also some comfort in reminding yourself, as we mentioned at the very beginning of the chat, It's not just Christianity. I mean, so if I'm coming out of a particularly conservative Protestantism, well, that's what I'm coming out of. But I could be coming out of radical Islam. I could be coming out of some cult. I could be coming out of, I don't know, like been raised by super lefty parents in a kind of, you know, L.A. self-congratulatory (laughs) – Whatever. And I'm coming out of that and realizing that farmers have an opinion, too. You know, like there's all like certainty is being peddled everywhere. It is more a feature of human brains than it is a feature of Christianity. And so that can help as well to just remember that.
1: Right. I I think that's exactly right, is that we are going to want it. And we won't be able to get it. And, you know, we also are going to want to eat all the sugar and fat and salts that we can find because we're biologically programmed to seek those out. Um, But we ought not. Right. So part of it is a kind of spiritual discipline to sort of train yourself to to limit your daily intake of certainty.
0: This leads to uh, a really good question that I love that is very difficult. Certainty is great for community cohesion. Uncertainty, not so much. What holds together a community that is able to embrace uncertainty? It seems great for individuals, but tricky for groups.
1: I think the thing that would have to bind the group together is the creation of a space in which people can explore and be authentically who they are. That if you can commit to that, then you can commit to creating the space where people are allowed to be uncertain and where uncertainty is welcome in that community life. That then, on some level, becomes the definition of the community. We're the community that allows people to be unsure of things. We're the community where it's safe to doubt, where the questions are more important than the answers. Those kinds of things, they are a commitment to embracing uncertainty. I suppose you have to be certain about your uncertainty, but... Well, your whole whole book is an
0: argument that we can be nothing but certain that we will have uncertainty. I mean, that is That's sort right. of the thrust of the book.
1: I think what you can have is a community in which the, the spiritual discipline of exploring and of questioning and of doubting and of reflecting and seeking and growing are the values that then becomes a community where uncertainty does not destroy the community actually makes it stronger.
0: I have a question here following up about that and and the interfaith community. Uh, Is this kind of conversation, is there evidence of this this very similar conversation about certainty itself, uncertainty itself in other religious traditions that you have come across? Like, are Muslims having this conversation? Are Buddhists having this conversation? Are Sikhs having this conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely they are. Um, I'm, you know, in... Judaism has been having this conversation about 5,000 years. (laughs) So, so, um, and yeah, and the thing is part of the presentation that we get of other religions is that they're monoliths, right? I mean, you know, in our community, we're all different, but those people, they're all alike, you know, and what
0: is that called? Outgroup homogeneity bias, I believe is the technical psychological term.
1: Yeah. And so, what happens is that when you actually look into these traditions, you find the very same questions, the very same wrestling, uh, the very same reflection on things. And going far back, I mean, I found some really great stuff by Muslim scholars who were, you know, there There was a time when different sects of Islam were all condemning each other as unbelievers, and, and it was the uh, philosopher, mystic al-Ghazali, who argued that So long as you believe in something in some way, you could believe it metaphorically or you could believe it literally, but you're still believing in it. Like, so you might think it's just an allegory, but that's believing in it, even if you're believing in it as allegory. So you see that there's this embracing of different ways of even interpreting a common religious tradition to create a common, you know, community.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. This is kind of a devil's advocate question, I'm pretty sure. Sure. Uh, And this person asks... When it comes to relationships with non-Christians, how could uncertainty be a better state of affairs than certainty in one's beliefs, as we're rubbing shoulders, so to speak?
1: Well, I think it comes back to that point about th- being willing to listen to what somebody else has to say, right? If I've got all the answers, then my Muslim neighbor or my Buddhist neighbor is really just now an object of my evangelistic efforts, right? That's that's the only role that person plays as far as our relationship goes. But if I think, well, I might not know everything, then I can have conversations in which I actually seek to learn about that other person's tradition. And in my own experience, whenever that happens, I always find some commonality, some truth that I had never before noticed, you know, even in my own tradition. Um, you know, when I have conversations with Muslim friends, they'll say, oh, there's this hadith of the prophet, he says this and that, and, I, and I'll think, that's, that's in the Gospel of Mark, it's just the same thing, or whatever, you know. So suddenly, I realize that there's a lot more opportunity for some kind of common relationship. That wouldn't exist if I thought that I had the answers, and therefore, the other person must not have them. And my job is to make sure they understand what the truth is. And I'm missing out on a way of understanding my own truth even more deeply.
0: It just reminds me of like being trained in youth group, the kind of friendship evangelism where it's basically you want <laughs> some of that was good. It was like love your neighbor and then have them wonder what it is that you've got that they don't have. But then what you've got that they don't have is the answers. Right. (laughs) But the first part is good. Um, So these last two questions are sort of about the limits of uncertainty. The first one is, can you distinguish the difference between uncertainty and apathy? Or alternatively, Mm -hmm. how do you use uncertainty as a tool to dive deeper rather than as an excuse to distance yourself from your faith?
1: So this is where the uncertainty as the gateway to what I think of as a more meaningful faith comes in, because the uncertainty is being embraced as part of faith, not as a reason to avoid it or Mm -hmm. to get out of it. So what it means is I already have the impulse toward a faithful life. I sense that there's something deeper, that there's some meaning, some purpose to all of this. I just am unsure about what that is, and I'm unsure about how to how to understand it so what i do is i take that uncertainty and say well i don't know but here we go right off to a land that god will show me right leave your country your kindred and your father's house yeah. to a right um we're, to a we're land. On
0: heavy on abram today that's
1: right and i mean there's a reason he's the model of perfect faith in three great world religions right right, right. um that is the faithful uncertain response me going, well, I don't know how this is gonna work out, so I'll just stay home here and ur, is not the faithful response. That is the apathy, right? That is where I'm allowing the uncertainty to dictate what I do. What I'm arguing for is that the uncertainty gives us the opportunity to live more boldly, more faithfully, more meaningfully, than simple following rote rules or just throwing up our hands and surrendering. Because I'm not arguing the throwing up in the hands and all bets are off and nothing means anything, and therefore can't, we can't do anything. This is a way to say there is something meaningful to pursue. We might not have perfect understanding. Well, we will not have perfect understanding of what it is, but it doesn't mean that there's not something to go looking for. that these signs, these symbols, these metaphors are po- metaphors are pointing towards something, and there's something there to be found.
0: I'm with you, but and now this is me, not the patron anymore. It's kind of comes back to that tier one, tier two thing, though, from earlier, Mm -hmm. because in point of fact, people find the certain answers to not work anymore. Some of them will read your book or listen to my podcast or they'll try a mainline church or something. But more than that, more often, people will just stop. They, They will leave it. And, you know, we could ask, what are the reasons for that and how much of that is a choice and how much of it is like default psychology and and that's really interesting and hard to answer but you know even even leaving out the fact that a pastor for instance needs people to come and tithe for his or her livelihood there is the idea of like well what i find is when people start doubting a bunch they end up leaving the church altogether and and so are we willing to sort of lose a bunch of people maybe temporarily maybe forever in order to pursue the pearl of great price for Mm -hmm. some knowing that most people will never get there. I mean, this is a really interesting and difficult question.
1: Yeah. I, I guess my thinking on that is that's why this has to be modeled where people have to see what faithful doubt looks like. They have to see visible models of it so that they don't, Assume that the only way to accept doubt is to walk away from the whole thing. And it needs to be modeled, you know, over and over and over again. We need to become comfortable with answering questions with, I don't know, rather than, well, there's an answer for that. And, you know, and I think this is, it's not easy. It's hard to have that kind of vulnerability. But I think that that kind of vulnerability actually also makes for a more meaningful relationship in faith, you know, I mean, your pastor's got all the answers is impressive for a while, but then when you discover that he's or she's making things up or doesn't know something, then their credibility fails. But if that person starts off by saying, look, I don't know all the answers to this, um, you know, check me or look it up or ask somebody else. Then you're creating a space where that kind of transition can have a softer landing, I think, than when with these sort of the hard edged thing. So, Part of what I'm doing with this book is trying to create some more soft landings to give people a sense. Yeah, there's a place you can go and still be a part of this amazing thing, but do it in a way that where it reflects honestly where you are.
0: It's worth noting, I think, that it's not only liberal Christians who are willing to embrace uncertainty. Like I have a friend, Andy, who is a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he's all about uncertainty. He's just kind of like, yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know the answer to that one. And, and sometimes I can think that he's copping out by appealing to mystery, maybe if it's a, if it's an issue that I think there's actually kind of an answer on, he doesn't. But like, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of respecting him and appreciating him a bit more throughout this conversation as someone in an evangelical pseudo denomination, who does actually instantiate this kind of uh, mystery and willingness to have uncertainty. So you might find this even in a conservative church.
1: Right, yeah, I think you're starting to see places where it's showing up more and more because younger generations are not satisfied with pat answers, and you know they they can smell a bill of goods when they're being sold one because and, they have
0: Wikipedia and Google right. I think is a big part of it,
1: right. And it's why there's so many nuns, right? Because they look and go, yeah, that can't be the whole story. I and don't a, buy N-O-N-E,
0: it. No, no religious yes. affiliation, not uh, Catholic nuns. Yes, yeah.
1: that's right. <laughs> yeah. Although I imagine there are a fair amount of nuns who doubt as well. But there are... Um,
0: but there's certainly the, not so many nuns these that's days. right. <laughs> there are not very many of those nuns.
1: That's true. There is a tremendous body of people out there who do sense that there is something worth pursuing in the spiritual arena they're, they will identify themselves as spiritual or not religious but not religious you know they they're looking for for meaning and purpose in their lives and i think religious organizations that are smart will be looking for ways to incorporate uncertainty and doubt in the way they reach out because they will, will want to create spaces where this increasing group of people will be able to find a home that's authentic and honest
0: Let's close with uh, one final patron question that is on the personal level. This person asks, when can uncertainty be unhealthy? I'm usually quite comfortable questioning things and saying, I don't know, to a lot of things. So he's on the right track. Mm -hmm. But I feel like there could come a point where I don't know which way is up. And that feeling of not being tethered to anything, to anything certain, leads to an unhealthy state of mind.
1: Yeah, I think uncertainty... If it's an excuse for inaction, it can be a problem. If uncertainty, right? If you're just slipping into nihilism, or uh, that's that's a problem. But I, for me, the uncertainty is. Let me say this: faith is a choice. Faith is a choice to see the world as a world defined by love, not by fear, by justice, not by injustice by community rather than by self-interest, right? It's a choice to see it that way because you are perfectly legitimate if you look at it and say, it's not any of those things, you know, it's it's completely full of injustice and violence and self-interest and all that stuff, right? So, so when we say that God is at work, when we say these things, we are making a choice not just to act out our lives that way, but to see the world that way, to find those God moments, to see the love and grace at work in the world. And so faith requires a positive step forward. The uncertainty, is what I'm arguing, doesn't prevent you from doing that, it can actually allow you to do it more deeply, more meaningfully. But you still have to make that same choice to actually do something, to actually engage with the world in a meaningful way so whether you are certain or uncertain the choice in faith is still the same you still have to say i choose to see the world this way and i choose to live my life according to it the uncertain just admits i might be wrong about this but this is how i feel my heart pulling me this is what i think the world is about this is what seems meaningful most to me so therefore i will choose to follow it even though i cannot know for sure
0: That's maybe a way to distill everything we've been saying, is that you might have been taught that the important metric here is certainty versus uncertainty, but actually it is commitment versus non-commitment. Right. That's really the value question, is are you committed to your religious faith, or are you not committed, rather than are you certain of the propositions within your faith, or are you uncertain of them?
1: Exactly, right, because at the end of the day, you still have to make that choice and you have to set out on that journey whether you admit you know where you're going or not, right? And I think because well, I'm arguing we can't know where we're going all the time, it's healthier to say I'm not sure, and that opens you up to a more meaningful experience along the way.
0: What a chat. So, Patron question, listener question from Josh. What comes after permission? Even if we no longer feel beholden to toe the line for an institution, often there is a deeper mourning process that occurs between ourselves and the internalization of those rules, beliefs, or practices. I'd be curious to hear more about your own internal or emotional process that has occurred alongside the intellectual liberation you've experienced. I know that for myself and many others, there seem to be phases to our exodus, Has mourning played a role for you as well? It's a great question. My first thought is, what comes after permission is the continuation of a life of faith, hopefully less burdened by whatever was laid on you by people in your faith community earlier in life. I mean, everything comes after permission in that sense. But I like how Josh's question is getting at more of the emotional aspects of this process. And I'm grateful, actually, to be able to think through this and answer it here. I think we tend to spend a lot of time, especially on podcasts, discussing ideas, theology, theories, Um, but feelings matter, too. We are in bodies. We are embodied, and our emotions are part of ourselves, Um, and we should listen to them because we can learn a lot. So, okay, as Josh says, we feel permission, and we realize that no one particular institution or statement or faith or interpretation of the Bible or denomination or whatever— should limit or determine what we can and cannot believe or how we ought to continue our life of faith. We recognize there are other institutions, there are other interpretations, there are other statements of faith, other denominations. Great. And that is experienced as a kind of freedom. But what comes after that? Should we mourn whatever part of ourselves has been damaged in the act of escape? We might naively assume that there will be no vestigial pain, no mourning process that's necessary. I mentioned this a bit ago on a previous Q&A, but I'm experiencing some some of this right now after leaving our church. Years of feeling like a partial heretic have left a certain mark on me, and I think that while I was still in those faith communities, I didn't let myself totally feel it. I thought about it plenty, but I came to the conclusion that what was necessary was for me to be kind, to disagree in love, And to not take it personally that we disagreed on some things. And I still think that's the right intellectual posture to hold. I do need to, like, let people have their differences of opinion. I have one. They have one. We have read different people. We've thought about it differently. We've had different experiences. That has to be okay. But it might not have been possible for me personally to stay in those communities and to also robustly feel the pain of that ongoing partial rejection. Maybe rejection is too strong of a word, but theological suspicion or something like that. But maybe I could have let myself feel it. And it's just that my own increasing realization that letting myself feel my feelings coincided with leaving the church. After all, this is something I've been working on recently. But maybe you guys could figure that one out for me. If you are staying in your community, despite some cognitive dissonance, as Trisha and I argued two weeks ago that you should really consider doing, staying, are you able to feel the parts of that experience that hurt? And as I think about this, it seems like, of course, you should be able to do that. Probably for me, I just wasn't paying much attention to those feelings while I was still there. And it took me leaving for those feelings to force themselves front and center, which they did. Either way, though, in answer to Josh's question, yes, I have been mourning this, And I'm continuing to process it. And I really have been going through a kind of personal renaissance on this issue of feeling my feelings. I have mixed feelings about feelings. I have uh, whatever. I don't know what I think about the Enneagram. But I'm closest to a seven. And sevens run from our feelings through having exceptional or interesting experiences. That is certainly true of me. Bluntly, I'm not good at feeling my feelings. It took me a couple years of therapy before I even realized that I needed to feel them. When I started therapy, I thought what would be best is to present myself to my therapist and myself as someone who understands situations, who can describe them, who can think about them rightly. And that's helpful. It makes uh, me pretty good at life, so to speak. Uh, I, I can accomplish goals and whatnot, but it's not great for actually connecting with my own self, my own story, and and really even stopping behaviors that I want to stop. So it's, you know, coinciding with my church transition and with doing this podcast, which is the most overt and public thing I have made about my own faith thus far. So if Josh is right that we have phases to our exodus out of one tradition and into a new land— The phase I'm in right now might be called feeling the change. I've been attending our local Episcopal church about every other week recently, and and part of that experience really does feel kind of like a halfway house. I don't know if we'll end up there in the long run, but it's a safe place for now. I get to recite the old and beautiful language in the Book of Common Prayer. I take the body and the blood. I try to feel grateful. I try to feel that pain of change to feel the nostalgia and the loss of our old church. Um, One thing that I don't know if I have dealt with much, but I know I need to, is forgiving those who harmed me even if on accident. My grandfather, for instance, was obsessed with end times prophecy and he was frankly kind of a shitty dude. He was also a Lutheran pastor his whole life and I don't think I've forgiven him for the ways that he contributed to my own anxiety problems, including anxiety around end time stuff, and for being such a bad Christian role model. I don't think that I've really forgiven the larger end times industrial complex that we might call it for being so intellectually and theologically vacuous and for shearing away billions of dollars from gullible Christians. Even as I say this, I'm feeling a lot of anger. I have work to do here. I don't want to live in that anger. I want to forgive. I want to move on. But is there a difference between cheap forgiveness and costly forgiveness? Does real forgiveness include thoroughly feeling the pain, the betrayal? I don't know. I don't know. But it's something I've been thinking about. Some of the motivation for putting in all the hours to create and sustain this podcast certainly comes from that anger, that fire. I'm motivated to create something that helps some other Christians avoid what I went through, or at least at the very least, repeating it for the next generation. I'm grateful to have an outlet for that energy. And of course, I'm beyond grateful when I hear stories from you guys, when you are able to get beyond something that was put on you before. And keep those coming, by the way. You have permission, podcast at gmail.com. I love getting those emails. I'm also realizing that I'm in a season of life when I'm just more and more interested in the emotive experience of being a person. The old therapy trope is that therapists just keep on asking, how does that make you feel? My therapist does not do that. But for someone like me, that's actually a pretty helpful question, as long as I'm willing to spend the time and energy to really dig into those feelings. Because once I do that, I start to notice patterns. It's almost like journalism, investigative journalism. If you want to know yourself and which things outside yourself are actually affecting you, not necessarily the things that you currently assume that you care about and are affecting you, then starting with a deep inventory of your own feelings is a pretty good place to start. I'm so new to all this. Some of you, I'm sure I sound like a young, excited convert, a zealous newbie. But I guess if that's the case, then it's a phase that I have to get through. Um, I think I answered the question, Josh. Thank you for this question. If even just that I had an opportunity to like think through some of this myself. I'm still mourning. I'm still feeling a lot of pain. I'm still feeling a lot of anxiety. I'm trying to feel it and live into a life of Christian faith, a life in imitation of Christ. Increasingly, I do this while acknowledging the unavoidable fact of uncertainty and just doing it anyway, to tie it into today's episode. So, huge thank you to Laura Condoragian for editing my conversation with Mark. She's new to the editing team. I'm stoked to have her. What's up, Laura? There is a link to the website for Mark's book, The Certainty of Uncertainty, in the show notes. Of course, we've got a link to the Patreon. This is where you can get two bonus episodes per month. You can be a part of the Facebook group, which is where I interact almost daily. I field questions for guests. Uh, Just yesterday, I put up um, a request for questions about... Uh, An interview with a marriage family and other kind of therapist, Doug Shirley in the Seattle area, about like living with loved ones through faith transition. Children, spouses, families, close friends. Uh, I got incredible questions. Uh, It's also a place where you can ask and vote on which of these patron questions get answered at the end of the episode. Uh, It's five bucks a month. Don't let money be a problem. There are scholarships if you really can't afford it right now email me, you have permission, podcast gmail.com, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. If your spouse is a patron and you want to be on the Facebook group, just add it. Just find it, request it. I'll look up your last name and add you. Maybe if your last name is different, shoot me a message on Facebook. And these episodes are meant to be a resource. Please share them with people get conversations going. Let me know how those conversations go. And you can email me with anything. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys. See you next week.